Heroes get remembered. Here's the windup. Legends never die. Fastball hits deep to right. This could be it. Way back there. Oh, Welcome to Hardball. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Major League Baseball's history in first person. Conversations that span almost 20 years. It is 9.46 p.m. With the men who saw and made that history. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Many of whom are no longer with us. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Stories from the 1930s. To the 21st century. This is Hardball. Dad, you want to have a catch? Welcome to Hardball. My name is Chris Domino, and this is episode 16 of our audio trip through the history of Major League Baseball. Before we get to today's guest, I want to thank you for finding us, and I ask that if you think our little piece of the podcast world is worth sharing, you do so. Hit subscribe so you get a notice when a new episode drops, and if you listen on Apple, please rate and review. I'm told it helps spread the word as well. For those of you who are new, I hope you go back to listen to the previous episodes because the best feedback I've gotten is that it doesn't matter if you root for a certain team. These conversations go beyond team loyalties and uniforms. I started this project not actually knowing it was a project almost 20 years ago. I had two goals, one completely thought out. Could I speak to someone personally involved in every one of the Sporting News' top 25 moments in baseball history? The other was to simply find interesting stories wherever they might be, not knowing where that might lead me. Well, today's guest fits both of those categories as well as anyone I've ever caught up with. What if I told you that a lifetime 266 hitter, a man with 34 career home runs and 390 RBIs, who retired at 30 years old, he'll tell that story here, was in the building and was on the field for not one, not two, but three of the game's greatest moments. Bill Mazeroski's home run to beat the Yankees in 1960? Wait until you hear the firsthand account and story of one of the all-time greats who cried after that. Willie McCovey's line drive to end the 1962 World Series? He caught it. And Roger Maris's 1961 season, as he broke the all-time home run record, he lived it, and we'll talk about it here. What if I told you that this man has as many World Series MVPs as Johnny Bench, Frank Robinson, Mike Schmidt, and Derek Jeter? What if I told you he has one more World Series MVP than Willie Mays, or Hank Aaron, or Mickey Mantle, or Cal Ripken? and that both of these facts are in large part what makes baseball the greatest game in the world. The World Series MVP list is the most eclectic list in all of sports. It runs the gamut of, that makes sense, he's a Hall of Famer, to, well, guys like the man I caught up with a couple of months ago for this sit-down. To help explain who the man is away from the field, I will give you this. I think two of the greatest measures of a man might be, would you send your 18-year-old son to him to spend four of the most important years of his life with him? If college is to help you learn how to be a man and how to prepare you for life beyond the ballpark, check the box. As the head baseball coach of South Carolina, wait until you hear what former teammates sent their sons to play for him. Secondly, if given a chance to choose who you would like to speak of you, to eulogize you in front of friends and family because you knew he saw you at your best and worst and loved you through it all, that's him. Bobby Richardson is 84 years old, and boy, has he led a life and enjoyed it. And his ability to recall the names and places and the import of it all is here. The role that Mickey Mantle played in his life and how it led to him being there at the very end of Mick's life. 
a life that Bobby played a large role in changing. Yogi, Whitey, Casey, Billy, Roger. Wait until you hear how different his nights out were than some of his teammates. A life led not perfectly, but certainly with his eyes and heart wide open. Here you go. Robert Clinton Richardson, Jr. When I was 14 years old playing American Legion baseball in Charlotte, North Carolina, they took our team out to see a film. And the name of the film was Pride of the Yankees, the story of Lou Gehrig. It was a sad film, but a great organization. And I thought, man, I'd sure like to be a part of that. Five years later, at 19, playing in Yankee Stadium, and then 10 years later, a day at Yankee Stadium, when I could say, as Gehrig said, how lucky it has been for me to have been a Yankee. Here's your pride of the Yankees. And the batter's Bobby Richardson, one for four. What we call like the teacher on the club. There's a looper into left field, and it drops in there for a base hit. Bobby Richardson on with a single to left to open the ninth inning for New York. 18 runs scored. Nobody struck out in this ball game. Bobby's 11th hit in the series. There's a line drive in the right center field for a base hit. Richardson will score along around second and goes on into third. And there's a shot grab by Nelson. Steps on first and rarely missed the game. Uh, he was not tall as far as stature, yet he had some 200 hit seasons. His name's in the record book in the 60 World Series, along with names like Mantle, DiMaggio, and Ruth, and even ahead of them in some slugging categories with one ball game. And I think that pride carried over into our play. I think Madeline Fittafield was a quiet leader. I think that uh, whether it's Kubek or Boyer or whoever it might have been, I mean, there was a certain pride that gave you the impression that if you were behind the late innings, you could still win. Well, welcome into another episode of Hardball. Tonight, we have the honor and pleasure to speak to Bobby Richardson, a man who played in a whole bunch of World Series games, I believe 36 in total, and 30 in a row at one point in his career as well, which still might be a record. He joins us today from South Carolina, Bobby Richardson with us today. Bobby, thank you very much for the time. How are you, sir? Well, I'm doing fine, and thank you, and glad to be with you today. Thank you for calling. Oh, I really look forward to it. I I just want to ask, without going into exactly how you ended up with the New York Yankees, everybody does have a story. And a lot of times it centers around a couple of scouts or more than that, maybe coming into a home and trying to figure out why this might be a good fit for Bobby Richardson, the son, uh, as the scouts make the pitch a little bit to the families, every bit as much as the players at times. <laughs> Can I just ask, is yours a similar story? You know, mine is. Um, when I was a freshman in high school, I went out for the baseball team. My dad loved baseball. He afforded me the opportunities, a little league level and so forth. And and uh, so I decided to go out as a freshman for the high school baseball team, and but was playing basketball and had uh, tournament play, so I was about a week and a half late going out. Went out with a big catcher by the name of Latson Cubbage that later became an outstanding football coach, but he made the team after three days, and the coach said to me, come back next year. But instead of uh, waiting till next year, I went out for the American Legion team, and we won the state championship, regional championship, and we were playing at a final game in Charlotte, North Carolina against Richmond, Virginia, and the winner would go to the American Legion World Series in Omaha, Nebraska. And they took our team out to see a film, and the name of the film was Pride of the Yankees, the story of Lou Gehrig, and Gary Cooper played the part in the film, Babe Ruth played his own part in the film, and I thought, man, what a great organization. And how I'd like to be a part of that. And then we got to the ballpark to play that game, and the Yankee scout was there. And he asked the coach to hit me some balls in the hole at shortstop. I was playing second base, but he wanted me over at shortstop and to field some balls uh, from the hole there. And then he came up to me after the game and said, I want you to know that when you graduate from high school, 
I'll see to it. You have a chance to sign with the Yankees. So I became a Yankee fan, and sure enough, at 17, the day I graduated, I signed. And uh, what a what a wonderful opportunity for me. I do want to ask about another opportunity or two that was presented to you at the college level. But how many teams do you guesstimate? Uh, 16 team. There were 16 teams, right, in each league, and of the 16-12 gave me the exact same offer. At that time, there was a rule that was in existence that if you got over a $4,000 bonus, you had to go up and spend two years on the parent roster. Mm -hmm. That would be a waste of time unless your name was Al Kaline for most (laughs) high school young boys. And uh, so I I had the same uh, offer from 12 of the 16 ball clubs. And the Dodgers had uh, tried real hard. They, uh, they, they courted me pretty heavy, but my heart was set on a Yankee uniform, and it worked out good. Your dad, I, I don't know what the final number was, uh, but I'm assuming your dad, a hardworking man, I don't know if he was first generation, second generation, really how long your family had been here. But the yeah. idea that you said he afforded you the opportunity to play both high school and American Legion baseball is is a really interesting thing. When you get to the age of 17 and somebody is talking about thousands of dollars, when you've probably seen, and I don't know what your understanding is at 17, hard work, money. Um, but but I've talked to guys who said it's a really interesting dynamic to know that you're there's a possibility you're going to be making more money than your father at 17 years old. Well, that, that's true because my dad was in the tombstone business, marble and granite. He had some brothers in with him, and I'm not sure he made over $65 a week in his lifetime. But that 65 was enough to give us everything that we needed at that time. We owned the home, and the food was there, and the opportunity didn't travel much or anything like that. But he would still come out to every every ball game I played in in the Sumter area. Can I ask size wise? Um, because I know when you broke into the major leagues, you're certainly not a a big man. What was the talk <laughs> at 17? Was it always going to be second base? Um, you know, I, I was originally signed as a shortstop. And I played shortstop some, and when I got to New York, Casey Stingle said, we've got Mr. Rizzuto, you better find a new position. (laughs) And so I moved over to second base. And uh, I actually, if you look back, I played a number of games, not a big number, but a number at shortstop and a number at third base during my time in New York. Actually, I was a defensive player to go in for Rizzuto. They would pinch hit for him in the last seventh inning. If we were behind in ball games, I'd go in and play the last couple innings on defense at shortstop. And uh, I remember one time we were playing in the World Series. The only game my dad saw happened to be there that day. And Gil McDougal went up to Stingle and said, I just don't feel good today. I feel like I'm too close to the hitter at third base. Why don't you let Richardson play third and let me play second today? And Stingle said, okay, that'd be fine. So the only game my dad saw played third. So I didn't touch the ball that day, not a ground ball of any kind. So can I ask the idea of, I think it was 19 or 20 years old where you're called up for the first time. Everybody also has that story of how they find out where they were and, yes. and the idea that, okay, I'm going either to go to New York City or I'm going to meet the team on the road. No cell phones. You had to find a pay phone. You had a. I, I can't even imagine what those phone calls were like. Well, I had an advantage because I was playing AAA. Ralph Hawk was my manager. We had on that same ball club Whitey Herzog and uh, Daryl Johnson and um, Johnny Pesky and uh, believe it or not, um, Tom Lasorda. All were coaches on that ball club. And Johnny Pesky's wife happened to be going to New York on the same plane that Ralph Hawk got me a reservation on when he said. Gilby Dougal's been hit by a line drive, and the Yankees want you to come up and be there in time for the game tomorrow. 
And so she was on the plane with me, rode all the way to Boston and we talked uh, to New York. And we talked about that first few days. She explained to me about Johnny and some of the times he had coming up like that. And your first day is a special day. So I was kind of prepared for a little bit of it. And it was at a situation where not like when I signed as a 17-year-old and got off the bus in North Virginia. I didn't know a soul, didn't know where to go. The only thing I knew was the name of the hotel that I was to go to and call the manager. I had his telephone number. So when you end After up got to the hotel. Well, when you end up at Yankee Stadium, they're going to give you a number, they're going to give you a uniform and oh, there's Mickey and there's Yogi and there's all of these <laughs> guys that are, that are now your teammates, but there's also been stories. The game of baseball is really different now in terms of how young guys are accepted. I I don't know yeah. what the initial uh, people have called it chilly. People have called it worse than chilly. What was your reception into that clubhouse? Well, I had an advantage because when I signed at 17, the fellow that owned the Coca-Cola bottling company in my hometown also owned the Class B ball club in Sumter, South Carolina. Braves Farm Club at that time, but uh, Glavin and some others came through there. He had made arrangements with the Yankees for me to, to come up and to work out for three days before I went off into the minor leagues. And so uh, he had a private plane. He said, I'm going to fly you to New York. And I said, well, I've never been on a plane. Can I go any other way? <laughs> he laughed. He said, we'll take the train. So we took the train from Sumter to Forest and to New York, checked into the hotel, made all the arrangements there, went out to the ballpark. And I was to put on a uniform and feel some ground balls with the infielders during batting practice, take some swings, then take off my uniform, shower, and go in the stands and watch the game. I feel the ground balls. Corsetti was hitting, and I walked walked up to the cage, and I wasn't about to step in front of anybody, and Mickey Mantle came over by and said, hey, kid, come on, take a couple swings. And I walked into the batting cage, and for some reason, Mickey and I just hit it off. So when I came back at 19 on that first day in the dugout, in uniform, Mickey came out and he said, hey, Rich, come over here a minute. He said, I'm going to make like I'm showing you around Yankee Stadium. <laughs> and he said, within two minutes, there'll be two or three photographers over here, and you'll be headlines in all the newspapers tomorrow. It wasn't <laughs> two minutes. It wasn't one minute. They were all there. And sure enough, the New York Times, the Daily News, I had my picture, Mantle showing me around <laughs> the next day. And so I had a little bit of an advantage there with one friend. I felt like he was a friend. And believe it or not, later in life, we had a little place together in Boone, North Carolina, mm -hmm. Grandfather Mountain. He came down to my hometown. He came to Columbia when I coached down there. And uh, just uh, we, we were even better friends after baseball than, than during that time. We're going to talk about your relationship with Mickey and some of your other teammates. But I, I know you try to grab normalcy as quickly as possible. You're 19 years old. You're in New York City. It's 60 feet, 6 inches. It's 90 feet. It's the same, except there's nothing the same about now trying to play as a New York Yankee. Do, do you people talk about you. yeah people talk about ghosts and people talk about that's a team that and and I don't know if this is true you'd be the best one to ask allegedly Mickey used to tell young guys uh, don't blow this I've already spent my World Series money he would and he would say that uh, he would say that because well let's face it nine out of the first ten years I was there we were in the series. Mm -hmm. And uh, the one year that we lost out in 59, starting in 55, 6, 7, 8, 61, 2, 3, 4, we won every year. 69, we didn't win. And everybody asked the question, well, why didn't you win that year? And I said, well, um, I don't know. And then I remembered uh, that somebody said we didn't have a single 300 hitter on the ball club that year. Mm. Well, that would just be one thing. Pitching would be involved in all, too. But I was hitting 299. 
And Casey Single said to me, if you can get a hit first time up tomorrow, we'll take you out of the lineup, and the Yankees will have at least one 300 hitter. So word got around that I needed a hit to hit 300, and Billy O'Dell was pitching. He's from South Carolina, and he and I quail hunt together during the offseason. And he sent word over, I'll be throwing it right in there for you tomorrow. Brooks Robinson was playing third base, and he sent word, I'll be playing real deep if you want to bunt. The catcher was Joe Ginsburg, and he said, I'll tell you what's coming. And the first base umpire was Ed Hurley. He said, just make it close. I hit a line drive to right field, and my best friend, Albert Pearson, made a diving catch. <laughs> but I got two hits the next two times up and ended up 301. So, so he was the only and guy. that's a true story, yeah, now, by the way. He's the only guy not in on it at that point. I was the, That's exactly right. That's yeah. so funny. <laughs> do, can I ask, because you're still a young man at that point, why do you think you garnered the respect of not only your you teammates, know, but maybe people around the league at, at that young an age? You know, I, I don't have an answer for that, except I was a little bit different. I didn't drink. And so when we'd win a World Series, they'd have a Coke, one of the small bottle of Cokes for me over there if I wanted to shake it or if I wanted to drink it. And uh, we just, I had a great rapport with my cremate, teammates. So much so that here we are sitting now years later, and I've had nine of my teammates' funerals. I'm not a pastor. My two boys are. But uh, each one, starting with Maris and Mantle, uh, Maris really was the first one, and Fargo, North Dakota, he died at 51 years of age, and his wife called and said, Bobby, we'd like for you to represent the Yankees and have the eulogy at Roger's funeral. And then at that funeral, Mickey was a pallbearer, and he sat by me in the in the motor home going back. It was so cold out there to the hotel, and he said, I want you to have my funeral. I don't remember answering, but he reminded me every time I saw him after that, and sure enough, when he passed away, I had uh, to make all the arrangements. I had to find the church, had to find uh, Bob Costas and ask him if he'd come speak. And and uh, he picked out the pallbearers. He had done that, and he had asked me to call. Uh, the singer was uh, a guy that he'd played golf with all the time by the name of Roy, Roy Clark. And uh, uh-huh. I asked him if he would sing. But uh, And then it went on down the line, Bob Turley, Steve Hamilton, Cleet Boyer, Moose Gowan, uh, Ralph Houck, all of those guys. Uh, everything was different, but every one of them. So I just had a real rapport. In fact, just two weeks ago now, not even quite two weeks, Jim Coates passed away, and mm-hmm. his widow called and asked if I'd have his funeral in northern neck of Virginia. So if I would have told that. you at 19 years old, 19, you're going to play an A-World Series game. Oh, wait, no, you're going to play in 36 of them. If I would have told you that you were going to be a World Series MVP, if I had told you any of these things at 19, now look, there has to be an understanding that you could play the game. 12 teams don't come into your living room unless you can play. But but at 19, there's a really good chance because Mickey had a situation where you could wash out. You've never had anything but success. And, and it there is a burden. And it's, with all due respect, you're not playing for Kansas City at that point. You are playing for the New York Yankees and Casey Stengel. And there's media around to basically write down everything you do. If I would have told you any of these things to the 19-year-old version of you, what, what do you think you might have said? I would have believed you. I would have said, you know, that's exactly right. They've just traded Jerry Lump and Norm Siebert away. They were young guys waiting for a chance to play just like me. And I actually went up to the Yankees and said, hey, I'd like to go somewhere where I can play every day. And I remember George White said, you just be patient. You go play. Don't you worry. You're staying right here. You're not going anywhere. 
And that gave me a little bit of confidence, but uh, you're right in your analysis. I I would never believe that even um, if you would have said I'd have played in that many series games or if I'd have been a most valuable player that held a record that still stands after all these years. I only had 26 RBIs that year, all year long, got 12 in the World Series. No, you're right. And it, It's really incredible. So I do want to ask you about your teammates in a couple of seconds, but but the idea of playing at the major league level in the 1950s, they're one-year contracts. Uh, I tell the story yeah. all the time. Carl Erskine told me there were 26 teams in the Dodger organization, 26 minor league teams. He said, of course I never put an ice bag on my arm. I couldn't let him know anything. I, yeah. <laughs> you didn't want anybody to have any advantage to try to take the uniform off you. They're, they're signing people all around the country. There are scouts all over. The, I tell young guys today in the game, they're always looking for your replacement, but they have no idea what baseball in the 40s, 50s, and 60s was about. You're right. You're right. And I, I had my downs, too. When I signed, I took the bus from here to Norfolk. Mickey Owens was the manager. They were in last place. And I remember going to the hotel and then I kind of found out where the ballpark was and rode out with one of the other guys. And they had a shortstop that was having a great uh, year. He was their best player, home run hitter, and he was going to the reserve program for three weeks. And I was asked to step in at shortstop and take his place. And then I just barely hit 200, and it was segregation that time. And the African-Americans down the left field line, and they loved me, but the white people didn't like me at all. I wasn't playing good, and their star was not there. And I was discouraged, and I remember that my dad came up, met with the general manager, and I was ready to quit and go back to something and say, boy, it just didn't work out. But my dad and the general manager said, no, he's just playing over his head right now. Class B is a little bit too tough for a 17-year-old right now in this league. Said he's going to Olean, New York, and there in Olean he'll be playing with young boys his age. And I went to Olean, and then 30 games or so I played a hit 412. And I uh, skipped over Norfolk, the Class B tub, the next year and went to spring training with the Class A Binghams and Triplets. Played every inning of every ball game. We played the Yankees on exhibition. They came down to players, and Mantle hit a home run. We beat them 5-3, to three, and Casey Stengel said to me, he said, hey, Rich, he said, I want you to come down. I'm having a special uh, pre, uh, pre-season, uh, pre uh, training season uh, class for some of the young players, and I want you to come down and be a part of that. And I said, I'll be glad to come, and I did come. And then I uh, I played every inning of every ball game in Binghamton. I was second in the league in hitting and and uh, made the all-star team. And, 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 and then the next year went to spring training with the, actually with the AAA ball club. Do you know that – Again, the right person asked. The, the story with Mickey is when he came up and he struggled, the same thing. He, he was yes. going to quit, and his father, you know, yes. again, it's 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 a yes, lot of times it's the father. Right. The lead mines, yes. Yeah, he said, so well, here's your choice. Said, said now you always got the marble yard. The marble yard is granite and marble tombstones, you know, that my dad was in that business. Mm-hmm. I guess that's what I would have been looking forward to. I did my first year, though, when I signed. I went back to the University of South Carolina and enrolled in college at the University of South Carolina. I was doing it on a semester basis. Mm-hmm. And so I did go that first year. The second year, my dad got sick, and I switched over to a business college in my hometown. And then the third year, he had a battle with tuberculosis, and I had to drop out. I did go over and take some credit to the Bible college, but uh, I— you, you had to, in those days, get some kind of job during the offseason. Right. Too. Now, were you offered yeah. scholarships at both North Carolina and Georgia Tech? 
Uh, I was, but um, one of them was uh, political in the sense that there were three businessmen in town, and they had great contacts with Georgia Tech, and I was actually offered a basketball scholarship at Georgia Tech, and and then uh, I was offered a basketball scholarship at Presbyterian College, and then North Carolina was another political thing where the folks in town uh, not only knew the baseball coach, but one of their relatives was teaching at the school, but mm-hmm. the scholarship would have been uh, partial scholarship, not full. So like let, me, Georgia Tech. let me ask you about October baseball. Um, okay. I mentioned I mentioned normalcy. You you try to make it as normal as possible. Do you remember? Do you recall this many years later of butterflies, anxieties, uh, anticipation, not having a problem with it? Because your career numbers in October are phenomenal. And and while you can scout, and there are so many numbers in today's game, there's analytics and there's reams of paper. My whole thing is until you know what somebody's heart rate is, do they want the ground ball hit to them in the ninth inning? Do they want the at-bat? Does the guy want to come out of the bullpen and pitch the ninth inning? It's the one measurable that doesn't really exist. Do you think that you had something a little bit different to succeed in moments like that? You know, I do. I would like to that ball hit to me. I'm laughing now, but I remember when the situation came up in the 62 World Series, Mm -hmm. Willie Mays was on second, and I walked over to second. Matty Lou was on third. He was two outs. McCovey was coming up, and I stood up on the bag with Willie Mays there, and Kubek came over and said, well, I sure hope McCovey didn't hit the ball to you. (laughs) And I said, why? He said, you already made one error in the series, and I'd hate to see you make one now. (laughs) Now, he was kidding, of course. Mm -hmm. We roomed together. Mays was laughing. But I, I I went back and um, and I wanted the ball hit to me. I said, you know, I I I want the ball hit this way. Cleet Boyer said just what you said. Cleet said, I sure don't want him to walk him and let the right-handed Orlando Cepeda come up. He said, I, uh, uh, he said, I, I'm not I'm not sure I'm ready for that ball to come my way. <laughs> and Cleet Boyer is one he of the was. best defensive third basemen oh, of all time. Best. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know what's crazy, and and I'll ask about the McCovey at bat in the '62 World Series. Um, but but to get to 62, and Tony Kubek, tell everybody again what Casey Stengel called you guys. You had a nickname. Was it Casey or Ralph Halk who actually called you guys the uh, the Milkshake Twins? Oh, the Milkshake Twins. It was Casey. It was Casey. That <laughs> <laughs> was before Ralph. Ralph didn't come on board until afterwards. When we clinched a pennant, the Yankees would always hire detectives to follow the Mantles, the Marises, the Fords, the <laughs> Billy Martins, and so forth. And But they were so smart, they'd get in a cab get out the other side, and the detectives couldn't keep up with them. <laughs> but they found out they had to turn a report in, so they followed Kubek and I and Bobby Shantz. And we went to the YMCA <laughs> and started playing ping pong. They were by a theater and bought some popcorn. We didn't go to the film. We just got the popcorn. And that was their report back to the back to the Yankees. But we were dubbed after that. Kubek and I, the milkshake twins. And you, you guys were interlocked a little bit later on in your careers as well. So so give me, on a scale of 1 to 10, what was the reality of Mickey, Billy, Whitey, those guys going out? Because the stories are phenomenal. They're, they're <laughs> thoroughly entertaining. But there's always been this little debate of what was it really? Well, I would say probably a little worse than you thought about, a little <laughs> more than you read. Um, you, you know, really, that's how I started playing regular every day. Billy Martin and Mickey and Whitey went to the Copacabana nightclub, and mm-hmm. they ran up a bar bill that was more money than they had. And so Billy Martin decided he'd just sign Dan Topic's name to the check. Surely he'll pay that. But they didn't want to do anything to Mantle or Ford or Barra, and uh, they they – kind of got talked because he was Stengel's Bobo. He was his very favorite player. 
But uh, George Weiss made the decision. He's not the influence we want, and so um, he was traded to Kansas City. I remember sitting in the bus an hour. We were waiting outside when Stingle was telling Billy that he'd been traded. And it was a seat by me, and he came back and sat by me and said, okay, kid, it's all yours. Wow. So and then the, the writers, the next, yeah, I'm assuming uh, the writers protected those guys a little bit. You were talking about it. Oh, they been did. More, yeah. They did. Yeah, they're, uh, yes, they did. They did. The one or two that you had to be careful about, they 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 were careful. They wouldn't say things around them, but mm-hmm. most of the guys did protect them, yes. So I apologize. You were saying that Casey said this one is yours now. This is This is your job? Uh, Casey didn't say it. Uh, Billy Martin oh. said it to me. Billy okay. Martin oh, gosh. said, okay, it's all yours. He said, I'm gone. I've been traded to Kansas City. Now, Billy and I remained friends after that. And um, I coached in not only at Carolina, but at Coastal Carolina. When I was down there, I called Billy and asked him if he'd come down and play in a golf tournament. And uh, we were raising some money. And I had two guys that uh, one gave us a lot of money for lights and the other one gave us cars that the coaches could drive. Mm-hmm. And I wanted them to play in the foursome with Billy Martin. And But I knew his reputation, so I called Clyde King, who was Steinbrenner's best friend and worked in every every staff position the Yankees had probably. And I said, now, if he cancels out at the last second, I'm advertising it and all, I'm going to call you. <laughs> he said, do that. Well, sure enough, four days before the event, uh, Billy Martin's lawyer, friend, judge, called me and said, Billy's involved in the winter meetings. He can't come down. So I called Clyde. He called George. And next day I got a call from Billy. said, I got it all worked out. Uh, looking forward to coming and be with you. It's always good to have the right phone numbers. That's right. That's right. And uh, and he uh, he didn't go in. I had a suite on the ocean for him, and my assistant coach stayed with him until the wee hours. And finally, he sent my coach home. And I'm not sure he ever checked in. But the next day, he came out, and the auction items we had, he he outbid everybody for everything, and then gave it back to the university. Wow. And he had his pitching coach, Art Fowler, who lived in South Carolina, came down. And my wife had always wanted a chance to talk to Billy about the Lord because Billy had said, I believe just like Bobby. And she just was interested in what he was saying. And I arranged a time for them to be together. And, and they had a wonderful time together. And, and, and I remember that six months later, Art Fowler called me and said, I want you to know your wife wasn't talking to Billy Martin. She was talking to me. And. So the Lord just gave me a rapport with all of my teammates yeah. over the years. How good a baseball guy was Billy? He was an excellent baseball and a wonderful manager. And he could spur the other guys on. He about, was that type. And that's why Single liked him so much. And I understood that. How about, I was a quiet person, didn't say much. Yeah. How about Casey? Because, again, the legend and the myth of Casey probably outgrew what he might have been able to do as a manager because he's certainly not talked about as much as a manager. What were your thoughts on him in terms of handling? I think he had the talent that no matter what he did, even pitching, pitching a left-hander against a left-hand pitcher would come out to his advantage, just anything. Because Elston Howard was sitting on the bench, he's probably the best catcher in all of baseball, mm-hmm. and only Yogi can keep him on the bench. They finally got sense enough to have both up in the lineup with one of them playing the outfield. So when he but doesn't Stengel give white... would do things like pinch hit for you in the first inning. Yeah, I'd heard this stuff. I remember stuff. one time he pinched it uh, for me, and I said, "Well, why did why did you start, Miss? You go pinch hit for me in the first inning." And he followed me right in the dugout and on into the clubhouse. And he said, "You get your little mitt, you go down the bullpen, you warm up Ryan Duran." That was my penalty to warm up Ryan Duran in the bullpen. But he would do things like even in the '60 World Series, I was batting down the bottom of the lineup, 
And I remember that the bases were loaded. We'd scored one run in the first inning, and Vinegar's Ben Mizell went out, and they brought Clem Levine in. And I thought, surely, Stingle might pinch it for me. You know, Slaughter always sat by him, and he would just say, hold that gun. That meant come on back and let Slaughter hit. And I didn't hear it. And then I walked up, and uh, I couldn't believe it. Well, I looked down at Crosetti with the pitcher coming up after me, he was giving me the bunt with the bases loaded, which is, I don't think, a good play. And I fouled it off, not by intentionally, but fouled it off twice. And then Chris said he hollered out, hit the ball to right field, try to stay out of the double play. And I was trying to hit a ground ball to the right side when Clem Levine threw the fastball inside. And my swing uh, was solid. And I remember that as I rounded first, I realized that he did not catch it. It was out of the park, grand slam. And when I got into the dugout, Stingle's response to me was, good bunt. <laughs> And everybody laughed, yeah. you know, on the bench. I'm assuming the one where he doesn't give the baseball to Whitey, though, in the 60 World Series is the one that might have even That's cost him his job. Yeah. You're exactly right. I never could understand that. Whitey won his two shutouts. He would have won three just as easily if he started the first game. And I never could figure that out. Now, yeah. Whitey's son, you know, played for me at mm-hmm. the University of South Carolina. Yes, sir. Uh, you you actually had a few former players' sons play for you, did you not? I did. I also had Wade Boggs and Tino Martinez trying to play for me, oh but they both signed professionally. So, I, go ahead. No, no, no. I was going to because the the whole fascinating thing is in the '55 World Series. Now, I grew up. My dad was a Dodger fan. I grew up in a Met house because he couldn't root for the Dodgers once they moved. Could never root for the Yankees, with all due respect. Um, <laughs> But, I understand that. But the 55 World Series, you start your career in 55, and it's the Dodgers winning. It's the next year where Don Larson throws the perfect game. Right. To, live, to live in New York City as that's going on around you, again, as a 19, 20, 21-year-old, it, it had to be fascinating to just see the people in the boroughs and the reaction to <laughs> New right. York City baseball. Well, that's true, but I was fortunate. I had my, my wife had a relative in Ridgewood, New Jersey, and she, from the very start, found us a home to rent in Ridgewood, New Jersey. Folks would go down to the shore, and they'd rent their home furnished. And uh, Betsy and I had children early, and so I had a couple of boys that were born in 56 and 58. And so um, uh, I do exactly feel just what you're talking about, not so much the boroughs, but I remember going to the meat market in Ridgewood, New Jersey, and he knew that I was a baseball player, and he said, the stakes are on me today. You had a home run today. Well, I didn't hit too many of those, so he didn't have any problem with that. But, but uh, you know, I, I'm with you on what you're talking about. What about Don Larson's perfect game? What do you remember? Well, I, let me just say two things now. Number one, in 55 and 6, I was not on the I was on the 40-man roster, but okay. not the 25. But I was hunting here in South Carolina and picked up the Sporting News, which was the baseball Bible in those days. And I read where the Yankees not only won the series, but here was the series, and these are the ones that got certain percentages. They voted me a third share of the World Series, even though I was up 20, 20 days or something like that. The veterans at that time looked out for the younger players. Same thing in 56. I was not there. Billy Martin made a great catch, and he was the second baseman in that 56 series. They voted me a third share of the World Series that year. And then 57 was my first full year when and when I was voting. And I remember we'd vote the Bat Boy in uh, a full year. And then I saw it deteriorate toward the last part of my career when Lentz and, and uh, Pepitone and Bowden came in. They'd say, man, he was only with us but uh, half the year. Let's give him $500. Yeah. And that's when I saw the deterioration of the Yankees for a period of time in there. So the 60 World Series, uh, as good as it gets individually, but there are reports that it's the only time that anybody saw Mickey ever cry. 
and he was crying in the clubhouse after the game, yes. And the reason I know that, he and I were sitting together in there, and uh, the, the, the president of Sport Magazine came in and told me that I'd received the award as a most valuable player from a losing team. And uh, I, uh, I, you know, I was shocked. I had no idea. I didn't know you could even win. I didn't know there was such a thing. And But I do remember that Mantle was there crying. And he said, well, that's an honor. So he made some comment like that. Said, Ball one outside. Johnny Blanchard and Ralph Terry having a little discussion. Because I've had a lot of players and, and general managers and managers tell me that the ones that, that stick with them more might actually be the losses. Now, I, I'd hate to think that that's the way it sort of plays out for a lot of guys, but the but the pain of the loss is equal to or worse than the joy of the win. It doesn't sound like you really have say, a life where... I'd say equal. Um, uh, I, for instance, let's say 63, your team had already moved out to the coast, yep. but Koufax was pitching. And I remember that uh, Kubek struck out, I struck out, Mantle struck out, Kubek struck out, I struck out, Mantle struck out. Third time up, I just wanted to be a first ball hitter, hit it somewhere. Kubek struck out again, and I struck out again. I walked by Mantle, and he shook his head. He said, don't use me to go up there, and he got in three times, too. But I can remember that just as good as I can remember any World Series, and I can remember that it was four losses in a row. I was embarrassed, but, but then again, I realized who was pitching, and and Erskine was there, of course, that you've interviewed and some others. They had a great mm-hmm. ball club. I, I mentioned, um, you mentioned Roger Maris. I can tell you my my youngest daughter's middle name is is Maris for Roger. And right? it's not somebody wow. that he, I didn't know him. I just uh-huh. thought there was something very interesting about him. Um, can well, I ask I can you? I agree in every way. Yeah, he, he seemed like a gentleman. Um, he seemed, And the 61 season, I don't know, again, fact from fiction, I've spoken to people like you in the past, but Bob Serve and a few others about mm-hmm. what New York was like and who was pulling for who, and he wasn't an original Yankee. So Mickey, who at times had been slapped around a little bit because people were, you know, as great as he was, well, couldn't Mickey have been, shouldn't Mickey have been better? But all of a sudden, 61, the, the story seems to be that Yankee fans galvanized around the idea that they were rooting for Mickey. I, I never really understood it, but I wasn't there. Uh, Roger well, seemed to handle himself with class. And everybody wanted Mickey to be the one that broke Babe Ruth's record. 
Roger had been traded in. But Roger was a very quiet guy. But I remember him be playing against him. He was the toughest guy in all of baseball to break up the double play. He'd throw a rolling block into you and knock in left field. So I made the double play a different way when he was on first base. I was glad he came to us as a teammate. But you're right. They were booing Madeline, getting on him. And then Maris came to town, and for a while, that took it off Madeline. They put it on Maris. But then in 61 and 62, he was most valuable player. Or was it 60 and 61? 60 and 61. Yeah, 60 and 61 MVP. And, uh, but he was uh, – it was a tough year for him. Every question, every report, same thing. Are oh, you going to break Babe Ruth's record now? And he was losing his hair, and it was tough. And it's true that Mickey uh, was the one we wanted to win, but when he dropped out – uh, we all, our allegiance went over to Roger, and we wanted to see him break it. But it didn't mean as much to Roger. He wanted to actually sit out of the game. Ralph made him play that last game when he hit the home run. The record just didn't seem to mean that much to him. But he was a he was a good ball player. And when I had his funeral, I honestly said I really felt like he defensively could make all the plays. He had a great arm, a great base runner. He hit the home runs, MVP. I felt like he should be down the road in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, and I had an opportunity to speak to Pat Maris at one point and meet his sons uh, on a couple of occasions. And and I don't know what the I don't know what the dichotomy was with with Mickey as a family man compared to Roger as a family man, but there was probably look I again armchair psychologist uh, the stories about Mickey didn't think he was going to make it much past forty family history. Uh, yeah. Roger unfortunately passes way too young, as you said, at fifty one. But was there maybe that moment? And did I read it wrong? And again, history can be interpreted mm-hmm. in a bunch of ways. I was always fascinated by their relationship because it didn't seem like it was cantankerous. It didn't seem like it was. It won. Yeah. So why did why do you think it had to be played up that way? Was it just so many newspapers you know, in town having to sell they newspapers? Were just competing against each other to break that record, I think. But they were buddies. Mickey would pull for Roger. Roger would pull for Mickey, and it was genuine. It wasn't any fake thing at all. Was it newspapers? People having to sell newspapers, having to write stories every day. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's yep. interesting. So you mentioned Tony Kubek, who I think I told you this in the past. And I, Tony Kubek is he, he's been a gentleman who I call once a year and I probably did it for 10 or 12 years. And I said, Mr. Kubek, I'd love to have you on. Well, Chris, you know, I'm not really and and extremely polite. He would tell me you can call me again next year. I would reach him, I think, up in Wisconsin and always I, I don't again, everybody has their reasons for doing or not doing things. It is interesting. Do you do you have any reason for as tight as you were with Tony why he maybe doesn't want to talk about himself or the career or some of the people that he played with and against? Tony got um, he got upset when they had the strike in baseball. He just felt like baseball was too great a sport to be able to turn your back on it like that. It had been too good to too many people. And and he walked away from it. And to my knowledge, he's never been back to a single ball game, probably didn't watch the games on television at all. Not, not mad, but just uh, disappointed. And uh, for that reason, the only thing he's gone back for uh, he the, he used to do some things, the four infielders, Moose, myself, and Boya, mm-hmm. and it was all done for Boya. He needed the money at that time. He was going through a health situation, and Tony would go back, and we'd do some memory, memorabilia things together. Mm-hmm. And the only reason Tony was there for those was just because it was helping Cleet Boya. And we would make a whole bunch of infield pictures together, and we'd sign them all, and 
and uh, we knew which one to trust, and that was Kubek, and we let him sign them last. If you sent them to Pepitone, he would never send them back to you. <laughs> or, or Moose, Moose would charge. I mean, we had a we had a fantasy camp, and my son wanted to come down. He said, "Okay, you can come if you come here. Give me fifty pictures of the infield sign." <laughs> so the negotiations uh, began early. Uh, that's right, and he he used to say. Tell everybody he paid me five hundred dollars a year to get the pop-ups, but I never saw the money. <laughs> oh, but what a great guy he was! And, and Tony, you you guys were tied at the hip in another way. Were you not going to retire at the same time? Yes, exactly. That's an interesting story. But let me just say this: when Tony first came up, he wouldn't even go on Red Barber's television for for the Yankees television show pre-game and post-game for the Yankees. And the only way Red would get him off call, he'd say, Bobby, now, Tony won't come. But he said, if you'll come with him, he'll come. And, and I'd go on the show, and I would interview I would interview Tony. And the, can you believe that he, when he left baseball, he went, became a Hall I of know. Fame broadcaster? I know. It's incredible. He was an incredible <laughs> broadcaster. He, he was excellent. Now, he was a learned guy. He, uh, he was as smart as anybody. I always said, and I mean this sincerely, he would have been a wonderful commissioner of baseball. Mm-hmm. He didn't mind telling Steinbrenner if something was wrong, but he was a fair person, and he would have been a wonderful and had the smarts to do it in every way. But uh, uh, you were going to retire at twenty nine, was it? Were yeah, you guys twenty nine? Twenty nine. We had won nine out of ten years, and Tony and I agreed we were missing out on our families, and we both decided to retire. And we went to Ralph and told him, and it leaked out, and Sports Illustrated found out about it. They sent a photographer over. He took the picture that was going to put us on the cover of Sport Magazine. I, I've got the picture. I'm looking at it right now. A little office in my home here. And Tony sent it to me. And uh, and what happened, they signed Bobby Mercer. And Ralph came up and said, I want one of you two, doesn't matter which one, to play one more year and break Bobby Mercer in. Well, we talked about it. And I said, Tony, if, if, you, if you don't mind, you do it. I really want to retire and go home. He said, okay, I'll do it. And then he got called into reserve program. And uh, almost all year he was in that reserve program and knew he was going to be. And so Ralph called and said, we've got a gentleman's agreement. One of you do it. And Tony can't. will you play one more year? And so I did. I played one more year. And Ralph, I remember asking me, he said, how much you want to, to play? And I said, well, Ralph, I didn't have too good a year last year. And I said, if it's all right with you, the same contract as last year is fine with me. He said, all right. And he gave me the same amount, but then he added sixty thousand dollars to it, fifteen a year for four more years. Well, that's tremendous. So, you know what's you know what's interesting, it, because I know that you had great respect for Ralph Halk, because Ralph Halk really probably so there's the Casey couple of few years, but when Casey's gone and Ralph comes in, the relationship that you have that he was a military guy, he was certainly going to be different than Casey. I don't know if you. Enjoyed it more, appreciated it more. I enjoyed it more than anything. He went in as a ma- he went in as a private, came out as a major. I remember one time we clinched the pennant. Ryan Durant had been drinking too much, and Ralph was smoking a cigar, and Ralph and Ryan came up and put a cigar in. He picked him up with his right hand, hit him with his left hand, knocked him out. We're traveling by train, and he locked him in his uh, little uh, sleeper. Said he'll wake up tomorrow morning. He'd be a different person. He'd be all right. And uh, he was my kind of guy. I tell you, he's I respect him more than any man. And he said to me when he took over, he said, "Now I know you've been in and out of the lineup." He said, "You'll be every day. I don't care if you're 120 or 300. You're my second baseman." 
And you just want to play for a guy like that. And he the other was part, my all time, and I had his funeral too. Yeah, I was going to say because the other part about that is the respect by giving you more money. Um, because they knew what Bobby Mercer was. Now, you want to talk about a guy who was in a bad position from minute one, the Oklahoma tie, center fielder for the New York Yankees. Ralph absolutely knew that he needed somebody, and he knew that it was going to be you or Tony, but the respect to actually say, I know this is not what you had planned, therefore I will take care of you, but you also could have said, Ralph, I'm done. he didn't tell me he was going to take care of me. That was all a surprise to me. No, 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 but I'm saying after the fact, where he had enough respect for the – you didn't beg out of it. You made a gentleman's agreement. So there – that's what relationships can and should be at times, even in a business. Absolutely. Absolutely. What about Mercer? Was he in a a bad place Uh, the way that I thought? He was a wonderful guy. Bad Mm -hmm. place because of who he was following, I guess. Yeah, and being from Oklahoma. You might know this, but uh, he had a friend that was in textiles – and during that time, after he'd uh, had a part of his career that he was going so well, uh, this textile guy said, Bobby, I'm thinking about buying the ball club, but I'll be glad uh, to set you up in business. If you want to buy the club, I'll put the money up. Bobby said, I don't think I'd like to be playing uh, for my own ball club. Uh, really? <laughs> that was when Steinbrenner bought it for $10 million. That's uh, right. Bought there. it from CBS. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I never heard that story. So Bobby Mercer could have actually been part of he ownership. Could have actually been play- That's right. He, he 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 gave him that option. Bobby said, "No, I don't think I better do that." And and uh, boy, what a great guy he was. He's one. Of, he was also one of my closest friends. Yeah, and he unfortunately and his wife now is just really close with my son and so forth. And I know he had some responsibilities with Thurman's passing as well. I know he took it yes, extremely he hard. Yes, he did. Right. He was supposed to have been on that plane. That's right. You know, the, the crazy part, too, is when you play for the New York Yankees, old-timers day is such a big deal. So I don't know. Yeah. I, I As a matter of fact, I think, was it game three of one of the World Series that you caught a ceremonial first pitch from Ted Williams? No. D- did you not? Uh, did Ted... I had the prayer of dedication for the new Yankees day. When I say new, the old Yankees mm-hmm. day, when they played over at Shea for 12 12- for two years, and they finished all the construction. I was coaching University of South Carolina, and Steinbrenner called me and asked me if I would have the prayer of dedication for the stadium. And Carolina has a plane, so I flew up on the Carolina plane. Rizzuto met me at Teetleboro Airport, took me over, and I had the prayer of dedication. That's on YouTube now. I can't believe it's still on there, but it is. Well, that I have to go and, find. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that I really want to go find. I, I just well, thought... It, it's in, it, it, what was the PA announcer's name? Bob, Bob Shepard. Bob Shepard. Go through Bob Shepard, the Yankees, and, and you'll find okay. the prayer dedication. So yeah. I had thought, though, and maybe I, I was mistaken, I thought before yeah. one of the Yankees World Series games, Ted Williams, who had just oh, retired. Oh, I know what it was. Oh, yeah, let me tell you what it was. Um, he, was, he, was uh, he was talking to Jim Hegan, and, and I was in the conversation with him. And um, he was telling me a little bit. He said, I've watched you at bat. And he said, uh, I like the way you swing. You don't strike out. He said, you get a part of the ball. And he was looked like he was giving me instruction. And so the picture uh, was there. And Ted was making like he was swinging a bat. And I was looking at it. And I got that picture. <laughs> and I wrote on there. Ted was giving me instruction before the game. But it was an AP wire photo. And underneath it said that uh, – that uh, uh, Ted Ted was still playing at that time, okay. and he said Ted had a home run. 
Mickey Mantle had a home run, and Bobby Richardson was five for five and also had a home run. And I wrote on there, the Red Sox have asked Ted not to give Bobby any more instruction <laughs> before the ball game. Well, I've, got that, I've got a copy of that right here. Some of my friends down here, I gave them copies. I've got a couple of them that are Boston fans, and I gave them to them. Was he as good as everybody oh, says? absolutely. Here, here's my deal with Ted. Ted um, and I both made the All-Star team one year in San Diego, which is his home base. Mm-hmm. And we sat by each other all the way back to New York. And all we talked about was hunting and fishing. South Carolina is uh, the Boston Red Sox owner. Uh, was headquartered down here. This was his home area. And he gave an island, South Island, and $10 million to the state of South Carolina. He's an outdoorsman. And Ted told me about going down and hunting. I'm an avid quail hunter. And we just had the best time and hit it off. And after that, he'd slide into second base and he'd say, Hey, Richardson, how many bird dogs you got? Do you shoot a 28 gauge over and under? You know, and we just had a wonderful time talking about that. And it remained even after an old timers game. So, as good a hitter as. Everybody says? Best hitter in baseball. Best Absolutely. hitter. Okay. Best hitter in baseball. No doubt. If I, boy, I'm going to put you on the spot now. Because right. one of the other things that happens when you play for the Yankees, it's old-timers day. Um, yes. And then when you're in spring training, I'm assuming you have players from the 20s, 30s, 40s, certainly yes. around at different points. So you probably had an opportunity. You're who's who of who you had an opportunity to be around over the course of your career has got to be as good as anybody's because of the association and the years you play for the Yankees. If I told you, Joe DiMaggio or Ted Williams, and the infamous, there was allegedly talks over drinks that why not trade one for the other and let's just put them in a ballpark where they could both really even be better if that's possible (laughs) than they actually were. What, which guy do you think you would have taken? Because you managed Before the game. Before I did that, I would say that trade should have gone through. I would love to have seen DiMaggio hitting against the Green Monster. And then I would love to have seen Ted Williams uh-huh. with 200. With, well, of course, Boston was, was short. Pesky Pole was short, too. But Yankee Stadium went out a lot farther shorter. And, do, uh, do you know for a fact did those, question, did, those conversations, did those conversations actually happen? Yes, they did. Yeah. Yes, they did. They sure did. And 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 you got to know this now. DiMaggio came back and coached for two years just to upgrade his pension. And, um, and so he was my coach. And um, he really liked Kubek and I. He trusted us. And he would come over and say, hey, Rich, Tony said, when you get to California, I'm not going on this trip. I'm staying here. I'm not going there. Your phone will ring. It'll be Marilyn Monroe. Tell her I'm not making the trip, but that I'll be in touch with her. And our phone rang three times. That happened on three times. Tony, Tony answered the phone all three times. <laughs> Perfect. Oh, man. So what would you have done? Who would you have picked? Uh, you know what? DiMaggio didn't strike out. I'm, I'm, I'm prejudiced. I, mm-hmm. 56-game hitting streak. And uh, I, I would, I've got a picture right in my thing out here. You know, it's a big picture with the most beautiful frame. It was given to me by Sam Simplicio. He was a Yankee guy that made it big in business after baseball and, and coached for a lot of teams. And it's a picture of Joe DiMaggio and Mickey Mantle and Ted Williams. And I thought that was three of the best. That's a hard question you gave me. Because I I want to say Ted Williams because I really believe he was the best hitter in baseball. But I can't... uh, uh, (laughs) 
I'd say it's close, but I'd have to beat Ted Williams, the all-time hitter. Okay, but you're okay. They're never going to take your Yankee card away, sir. You accomplished way too much to have your Yankee card taken away at this point. Yeah. So I I just want to finish up with a couple of quick things. I I mentioned Stan Musial to you a little bit earlier today. Yeah. And what I wanted to say, when I was 12 years old, my dad took me over to Columbia. They were playing over there. Columbia was uh, an affiliate of Cincinnati at that time, I think, and they had an exhibition game. And I hung around after the game, and my dad said, why don't you ask Stan Duzio walking out, street clothes. He said, why don't you ask him for autograph? I said, oh, he wouldn't want to do that. He said, we'll just see. And I went over, and he was so nice, and he signed it so legibly. And then uh, I've seen him a couple times, but really, I had Enos Slaughter's funeral, and Stan Musial and Lou Brock and the owners of the Cardinals at that time flew out. They called and said, we're going to be late coming in. Our plane has got a little late start, and I said, no problem. Uh, I said, we'll wait for you, and when you get here, when you walk in, we'll seat you, and then we'll seat the family, and then we'll start the service. And then after the service, we went out in the Tombstone area, and the, the uh, Enos's daughter sang, uh, take me out to the ball game. But then we came in and ate together, and Stan Musial's son-in-law was with him because he was getting up in age. And I told him about that time when I was 12 years old. He said, Richardson, you're just trying to make me old, feel old. I said, no, no. I said, you wrote so legibly. I said, I want you to know I've patterned my signature in the sense that you can read it. And I said, it was all because of you signing that that time. Now, I lost that in the years. I don't have any idea where it is. But also, one of the, I don't even know if it's possible to be as great as Stan Musial and still be a little bit underrated. But I think he sort of, at times, has slid through the cracks a little bit. And then people start to mention, well, 36-30, the home runs, um, yes. three World Series titles. It's really hard to be underrated when you're one of the all-timers, <laughs> but he might actually fit that bill. Well, you're probably right. But, you know, playing in St. Louis would be right. a little different than playing in New York. No doubt. And, uh, and, and he won his last World Series title in 46, so he played a long time without yes, having October baseball really be a part of his resume the way that some other players yes. were fortunate enough right. to have. Yeah. So, you know, I'm 84 years old now, and I live in the same house for 60 years. And I can go out today or yesterday or the day before, and there'll be anywhere from five to maybe ten things for me to sign. And that's 50 years after I've retired. I think a lot of that is baseball. You know what all the letters say now? They say, my grandfather was a Yankee fan. My father was a Yankee fan. And I have on the Internet tell you everything about your career. They know everything about it. It, it, it is it is amazing that, again, when you win a World Series MVP, when you play for the New York Yankees, when you've been around greatness the way you had been, the way that you competed and, and certainly played in October, there are advantages, and I use that word, I hope properly, for people to know your story. I've also said one of the reasons I, I sort of started this series, Tracy Stallard was one of my favorite conversations I've ever had. Eldon Auker. Um, mm-hmm. There are players who were not star players who mm-hmm. I honestly believe as they were getting up in age, when I spoke to some, I spoke to Ina Slaughter. When you speak mm-hmm. to gentlemen who, who reach a certain age, I'm not saying they were waiting for the phone to ring, but I think they were so happy. And, and my whole they thing were. is these stories go away. And yes. to, to be able to, whether it's to get a, you know, I had guys tell me I got goosebumps. I hadn't thought of that mm-hmm. person or I hadn't thought of that situation. I will tell you, and I'm going to ask you, I, I asked Phil Rizzuto, and I don't know why, but it was Phil Rizzuto who, for about a year and a half, I tried to set up the interview, and it was Whitey Ford who, to my surprise, said, Phil, do it. I think you're going to enjoy it. And and I asked Phil Rizzuto, 
Had he ever dreamt of being young again? Did he go to bed and was there ever, was he a dreamer in terms of he was still playing a game? He was a young man again. And I've asked a bunch of people, and I will ask you in a second, but I just, I, I think a lot of these gentlemen just wanted to have a moment, not to brag, um, yeah. not to put themselves in a position to say they were better than anybody else, but just yeah. to be able to relive and retell the story for as limited time as we might spend together. That's interesting. I, I, I looked up Rizzuto because he was a small guy. When I was 14, 15, 16, the Yankees started sending me literature, and most of it was about Phil Rizzuto. And oddly enough, my first roommate on the train going from spring training was Phil Rizzuto. And then he sent his son down to play for me at the University of South Carolina. And he told me, he said, now, my son's not that good a ball player. He's real fast. He can help you a lot on the bases. But he said, I just want him down there with you. And Whitey Ford's son was my switch hitting shortstop. He was an excellent ball player. Number one draft choice his junior year in college. And uh, I had Al Worthington's son as second baseman. I called Yogi. I said, you go send your son down. He said, no, he's going right to the big Big leagues. He's he's signing the contract at 17 or 18. He's not going to do the college thing. But but uh, my conversation with Phil, and I I will ask you that question in a second, I I do know that he made it sound like it might not have ended well with him and the New York Yankees. He was so happy he went to the booth because he got to be a Yankee forever. Had he been stubborn... He really believes he would have missed out on some of the great things that he was able to do, but he also doesn't believe his standing in Yankee lore and legend would have been what it what it became. Well, the the worst thing I ever heard was the fact, and this is a true story, uh, Casey Stengel again came up to Phil Rizzuto and said, Phil, I need your help here. He said, we need to bring a left-handed pitcher up. We need to pick out one person that can go down on the roster and uh, – and uh, who who would you who would you send down? Uh, who would you get rid of? And Phil thought he was serious, you know. He looked at a couple. He said, "Well, how about so and so?" He said, "No, it's got to be you." And that's the way he handled it. And I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, the wonderful player he'd been, Hall of Famer, and then to to leave in that way. And that's uh, sort of like Yogi. He didn't come back for 16 right. years. No. And uh, in Phil's case, he was a wonderful broadcaster. The people in New York loved him to death. He was so different. He well, he was a bigger star. A birthday. He was a bigger so, star after absolutely. his career. Absolutely, because of those and broadcasts. Bobby Versa was a star both years, but Bill was bigger. You're right. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. and I listen. I grew up with WPIX and WOR listening to both Met and Yankee games, and and Frank Messer and Bill White, and uh, yeah. you know, it, it, I'm so. Not, I'm not bragging. Let me just share this. Yeah. When I, I told you part of the story, I told you that um, that I retired early. And then I came down, and Paul Dietzel asked me to be the baseball coach at South Carolina. I turned him down twice because I told him I had a four-year contract with the Yankees. And then finally, the third time, he came to me and said, I really want you to coach. And I said, okay, I'm ready now. Let me call the Yankees and get a uh, get a, uh, uh, a release, which mm-hmm. I had to do. And and that's when they not only told me uh, uh, that 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 um, said we'll be glad just to pay you off, but if you want to, you can be our major league coach, you can be our Triple A manager, mm-hmm. or you can be our broadcaster. And I said, no, the reason I'm getting out is the travel. Thank you, though. And that's when Lee McPhail said to me, well, when you get settled down there, give us a call. We'll bring the Yankees down to play your ball club. That's tremendous. And four years later, when I was ready, I called him, and he said, oh, we got a problem. And I thought that was no. 
he said, we're traveling north with the Mets. And I thought it was still a no. He said, would it be all right if the Yankees and Mets come down and play your ball club? <laughs> and Yogi was managing the Mets. And uh, what a day that was. We played three against the Yankees, three against the Mets. And here's what happened. Yogi was driving. I, I drove the bus out to pick his team up. And he said, what are we doing today? And I said, well, we're playing three against you and three against me. He said, y'all can't compete with us. He said, I'm pitching batting practice every day. Let me pitch to your ball club. He said, that way you can uh, have, it, have it a little more even. I said, sounds good. I won't even dress out. I'll go up and announce the game. And uh, he did, and we beat the Yankees. <laughs> and he pitched against the Mets. We beat the Yankees and the Mets because Yogi was pitching for Okay, <laughs> so think about this now. Not All only right. those guys in your team. 18 to 22-year-olds. Oh, They're going to play man. college baseball. But hold on. Here comes a bus, and there comes Yogi Berra. And, and what the heck? Yogi's going to pitch today. That story, so these people at this point, I don't know if they're grandfathers yet, uh, but certainly <laughs> father. Can you imagine the stories that that, oh, that group of players has? Going on. Yeah, absolutely. And and, um, and and the fans that came out have stuck with us. They they just stuck with us. That just made uh, – we had 12 – 12,000, 15,000 wow. biggest. And Yogi and, and, and the Yankees and Mets both told me that was the biggest um, income they had from all spring training, even though they were splitting it. Right. So I'll ask you that question I asked Phil Rizzuto. Okay. Do you ever do you ever dream? Are you Because, again, here's the other thing, and he got really quiet for a second, and it's sort of been a theme, unfortunately, for a lot of people your age and the generation that you played in. He said the worst part about – I'm one of the last guys. Duke Snyder said the same thing. I don't have an ability to pick up a phone to call people. And he said, and both have said, and a few other players have said, that the thing that I I have to realize that hits me once in a while is I don't really have many guys that I can pick up a phone and call these days. Wow. Now, I've got one little advantage in that he sent his son down. His son married a South Carolina girl. And so for those years, uh, we were friends mm-hmm. because his son was down here. And I was down, I'll was never forget, he was supposed to bring the ring out to the wedding <laughs> at the big Catholic church down in Charleston. He forgot it and had to send somebody back to the hotel to get the ring. <laughs> But anyway, I know exactly what you're saying. And um, I think I'm fortunate in that I had Kubek to talk to all these years. Ralph Terry calls me once or twice a year. We're all exactly the same age. And um, so I have, but we weren't exactly the last ones, you know. Yeah. But I think I have one other advantage because um, I don't dream and I don't think about former games like that. Somebody asked me, what was your biggest thrill in baseball? Well, it changes. Mm-hmm. One of my biggest thrills was in 1950, 1962 when I led the American League in hits with 209, and Mickey was voted most valuable player. My biggest thrill is that when he accepted his war award, he said Bobby should have won it. Wow. And uh, that's my biggest thrill in baseball. That, that, <laughs> that, that, yeah, that. that comes from, uh, from as they say, a legitimate source at that point, a guy who lived that season absolutely, with you. Absolutely, absolutely. Do you think <laughs> and, you – do you think anybody's enjoyed their life as much as you? And, I, and I'm not, again. No. You know, I, I don't think so. I really don't think so. And I, and I was, these last four minutes, I was saying <laughs> that, <laughs> that I, I really did enjoy. And it's continued after baseball. We've had, um, I guess, Mantle came down to my university when uh, 
gave a baseball exhibition and hitting to eight-year-old boys. We had about 25 eight-year-old boys, and he would give instruction. He was in uniform, and and uh, we caught up with those, one of those boys 40 years later. What was it like having the icon of baseball giving that instruction? And he said, well, I just remember one thing. We asked Mr. Mantle if he'd take one swing. He said the assistant coach, Johnny Hunton, was pitching to him. He was batting right-handed. He had the ball over the ballpark over the football field into the parking lot and I jumped up and said we can't do that my car is parked over there (laughs) (laughs) but are you still there we've lost it again yeah no I'm here oh you're here okay good good but to be honest with you I just enjoyed every minute of it and uh but I knew it was time to get out yeah the time I did Did uh, how often do you have the um just quick aside, again, I think I told you, my dad yeah. was a, a Brooklyn Dodger fan. His favorite player all time was Gil Hodges. My mom was a Duke Snyder fan, so they dated at Ebbets Field. My right. dad was a big Dodger fan, and I remember there was a Father's Day where he didn't know, and I was probably in my early 20s. I was just working. I probably had $5 in my pocket because all of a sudden I'm a working guy now, and I surprised him. Uh, Duke Snyder had a book out, and he was doing a signing in Brooklyn, and I picked up my dad, and I didn't tell him what we were doing, but we went to see Duke Snyder. And, and when he realized what was happening, and I saw this in front of me on a number of occasions, and I've seen it now with players of this generation who are starting to retire, the yeah. idea of grown men, nervous, uh, some shaking, that, that's a really interesting, strange dynamic for, I'm assuming, players to... Yeah. It, it, I'm sure you're humbled, and I'm sure it, there's a lot of different things. But you've witnessed that. You've had people come up to you to ask you about these games and events and these players, and they're grown men who get visibly sort of worked up a little bit about meeting guys such as yourself. Well, that's that's funny, but I had three people come by today because it's close to Christmas. Three people came by. One brought a dozen baseballs, and he, he works for the young boys. But but um, I've got a guy coming tomorrow all the way from North Carolina. He's going to drive all the way from North Carolina. He's a Yankee fan, and he just, he'll just just go crazy when he gets you. He said, I can't believe I'm here. You know, that is humbling. It really is humbling. And I have that off, often. And not that I was an outstanding ball player. I played on a great team with some great players, but because of the winning those championships and all, uh, some of them know my name and some of them feel that way. But I can't imagine what somebody like Mantle, you know, or, or one of those guys would have been like. Bobby, and to, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, no. I was going to say Bobby Cox became friendly with Mickey, and um, yes, he did. He he played in Mickey's golf tournament, but he used to sneak Mickey in to yeah. the old stadium here and Bobby went out of his way to tell me he said Chris look I'm telling you Mickey knew the game Uh, I know the stuff with Willie Mays and Bally's and Atlantic City and how that sort of was baseball mishandled that because they really didn't know what to do but but he told me that no doubt and this is Bobby Cox Hall of Fame manager he said no doubt in my mind Mickey could have been should have been working in baseball because he was he was not just Mickey he was actually a guy that knew the game and could, could judge talent Absolutely. I agree totally with that. I agree totally. Uh, Bobby Cox and I quail hunt together. Back when he was getting two new knees, we uh-huh. go to Albany, Georgia, and quail hunt a little bit. And, uh, and I always liked him. In fact, he uh, 
He he loved metal. He took yeah. off from when Metal's funeral. He came all the way to Dallas, Texas, and left his ball club to come to the funeral. I, I just spoke to Jim Maloney a couple of weeks ago, and and I'd spoken to Don Newcomb in the past. And I know that Don Newcomb struggles with alcohol. He was one of the first, I'm assuming, to go very public with mm-hmm. the idea that he wanted to help other players. And Jim Maloney says, no doubt about it, Don Newcomb saved his life because Jim Maloney went from being a guy who was pitching in the major leagues, as he told me, a family, a house with a pool, and he did say with a pool, to living in a hunting shack, basically, with another guy who had gotten divorced, wow. sleeping on the wow. floor, not even in a room. But he got wow. an outreach call, and he spoke to Don Newcomb. I think he said it's 36 years now that he's been sober. Wow. Uh, you more than anybody with Mickey's situation and how Mickey really – I know he gave his life over to, to some degree, and I know that you were a part of this to God. And there were a lot of players who went through things that we wouldn't know, didn't know, and you did need somebody that you could lean on. I, I can't even fathom for guys like Don Newcomb and Mickey Mantle to have to admit that I have a problem because they had lived their lives just being this larger-than-life character. The most poignant interview on television I've ever seen was Bob Costas interviewing mm-hmm. Mickey Mantle after he'd been through Betty Ford. He was wearing a cap that I had given him. I was on the bat baseball assistance team, and I, they'd given me around the All-Star team, gave me all the equipment, and I gave it all to Metal. And he was wearing a cap, and it took so much courage for him, looking like he did at that time, to get up and say, man, oh, man, I haven't been a good husband. I haven't been a good father. Uh, I just, uh, I'm no hero. And then he then he, he said, but I still have a void in my heart, and that came later. But for him to take the courage to do that, but you're right, and uh, I'm, I'm just glad that I was available to spend some time. I remember that uh, my phone rang at 5 o'clock in the morning, and uh, we were there in Dallas, and it was the All-Star game. And... Uh, my my wife answered the phone. It was Mickey, and he said, Betsy, he said, uh, I, I want Bobby to pray for me. I'm at Baylor Medical Center, and I just uh, would like for him to pray for me. He said, I'm waiting for a tr- liver transplant. And I got on the phone, and we had a wonderful conversation. And I shared one verse with Mickey. I said, Mickey, there's a great verse that says, Delight yourself in the Lord. Find your joy in him at all times. Never forget his nearness. Then it says, tell God in detail your problems, your anxieties, and the promises, the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep our hearts and minds as we rest in Christ Jesus. Betsy went out and spent the next two days with Merle and his wife, and I went to Baylor Medical Center, and some of the teammates were there, Whitey, and some of the others were there. And, and then Mickey called me, and he said, I want you, I'm I'm getting near the end. He said, I want you and Betsy to come out and spend those final days with me. And we were there, and it's, they had two policemen on the door. You can imagine who all wanted to go in right. and see him and there were some guys that wanted to go just for a photo op, you know, to be there and say I was there at the end. And But I do remember that uh, it was a special time with Mickey there and his family and his boys were in there, too. Wow. There has to be a moment where you ask family for forgiveness. I spoke to Merlin Mantle, and she was pretty open about, look, yes. the problem with being Mickey was everything was larger than life. And yeah. You're getting pulled in different directions, and he, she yes. said he was no angel. And the fact that he came clean with, with some of that at the end of his life, you know, whether it's organ transplant, whether it's donors, which yes. absolutely the numbers went up when Mickey started to talk about that, but hopefully an awareness oh, I, for somebody that 
Um, hey, everybody's got their stuff. Everybody has their stuff. Yeah. Well, Betsy said Mickey couldn't get over the fact that somebody had to give their life for him to have the organ transplant. Mm-hmm. And he started that with uh, with a humbleness you wouldn't believe, you know, how humble he was, how grateful he was that somebody had uh, donated their organ so that he might live a little longer. It didn't turn out that way. In fact, my wife right now is battling kidney failure, and mm-hmm. we've been down to Mayo Clinic for the last, I've, I've been down four times, and she was at the top of the list, and one little test to go, and that was a mammogram, and she had cancer in the breast. And uh, we've since had the surgery corrected, and she has no cancer now, but she's still in liver failure. And once you get a cancer like that, you, you're off the transplant list. So dialysis is probably the next thing for her, but we're hoping she'll stay where she is for a while now. So we'll see how are, that works. Are you out. more proud, Bobby, of your life after the game or the time in uniform? Yeah. Well, I think it's a combination. I think I'm proud of my life because I had a great rapport with my teammates. And uh, and then even Eli Gerber, and uh, I, I got a letter from him right before he died that you wouldn't believe, just telling me how he turned his life over the Lord. I, he's written a book telling about it, about alcohol and so forth. Matt Summerall's another guy who did that as well from another yeah, sport. He, he meant a lot to Mantle, absolutely. He's the one that got Mantle to go mm-hmm. to 84. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. It, it, again, everybody has their thing, and sometimes it's public, and sometimes it's not, and sometimes exactly. people fight tooth and nail exactly. to make sure it doesn't become public. But when yeah. you have, when you feel there's an obligation to let people know, hey, um, this is happening more than you know. It can happen to somebody like me. There is probably an impact that's yes. going to be different than somebody not named Mickey Mantle or Pat Summerall. Whether it's fair or unfair, true. that's the truth. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Well, Bobby, you you've. You've led a heck of well, a life. I enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for putting up with my time schedule and working well, at the end of listen, the time. It was good. I'm fascinated by the career. I'm fascinated by the, the, the post-baseball life and the family um, the family life that you had and what's become in, really important to you for this many years. And uh, I, I really appreciate One thing we're doing next week, between Christmas and New Year's, I've rented a little place in Black Mountain, North Carolina. Uh-huh. It's a YMCA facility up there that we go to for FCA all the time, but it has 16 bedrooms and maybe 10 or 12 baths, and it's got a kitchen that will handle 50 and a dining room that will handle 50, a heated gymnasium. And we now have 17 grandchildren and 12 great-grandchildren. And when you add the spouses in and all, it would be 48. And all 48 of us are going up there to spend three days. Now, that is a life life well lived, sir. You know what I call it? My last team picture. (laughs) (laughs) Well, congratulations on getting all 48 up there because I have two teenage daughters. I got one already that can't come. She's a young girl that uh, she's 20 now, 24. And she graduated from Clemson in engineering, has a top-notch job with Exxon out in Baton Rouge. And she's in charge of a turnaround, and she's – responsible for the whole thing and she can't get out of it but that's all right she's she's got a good job and uh, she'll we'll see her later well listen congratulations on everything i'm so glad we had an opportunity to do this bobby thanks chris all right have a really good day sir thank you appreciate it given to bobby richardson a standout second baseman for the bombers for 12 seasons during the 50s and 60s richardson's 209 hits in 1962 led the american league a seven-time All-Star who won five gold gloves. He was a classic team player who always made others around him better. Bobby Richardson leading off. Second base, Tony Kubek, shortstop. 
Roger Maris, right field. Mickey Mantle, center field. Busted flat in Baton Rouge, heading for the trains. Feeling nearly faded as my jeans. Bobby thumbed the diesel down just before it rained. Took us all the way to New Orleans. Line drive to second base. The Yanks have won the World Series. As Bobby Richardson grabs that line drive. And the Yanks have won it one to nothing to take the World Series in seven games. And look at those Yanks. Bob Ralph Terry out there as Richardson was playing in perfect position. And Terry wins his second game of the World Series with the totals reading. One run, seven hits, two errors, and no run, four hits, one error. Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. Nothing's left is all she left for me. Feeling good was easy, Lord, when Bobby sang the blues. Feeling good was good enough for me. Good enough. 